Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and this is another in our series of environmental change makers, people we've found who are really changing the narrative, the scope, the perception of the environment, conservation, and what we all need to do to make our world a better place. And I'm really proud and delighted to have in the studio Sasha Dench, whom some of you may know because we have interviewed her before as the swan woman. Um, but Sasha's here to talk about why she got into conservation, what motivated her, a bit about her life and also about her fantastic new project. So Sasha, welcome and thanks for coming in. No, thanks for having me back. So Sasha, how did you get into this whole conservation business? Because you've done some extraordinary things, but you possibly didn't, you know, start out meaning to do what you've been doing for the last few years. So what got you into it? Where did, where did the real love of the environment or the natural world or being outdoors come from? Uh, I would say that was uh, growing up in Australia in a combination of being, well, my mum my and my dad lived um, separately. And with my mum, I was living out in the Australian bush. And there it was at a time when we had no power, apart from when we turned the generator on for a couple of hours in the evening, um, and no telephone. Uh, we weren't on any services, so we actually had to um, pump our own water and everything else. So it was a very kind of basic um, living in the middle of the Australian bush, though. So we had access to huge amounts of nature to go out and enjoy, and also a lot of freedom. Uh, so yeah having to entertain ourselves often I was there on my own I had siblings there occasionally as well and we had the free run of the river valleys around there and my nearest friend was two hours walk away and because we didn't have phones you sometimes walk for two hours to get to her place to find that she wasn't in and have to walk back again Um, but you just developed through that a kind of a connection with the, the natural world and an interest in it. It was constantly changing, constantly fascinating. And I think that's where I um, got the interest in conservation, but also a kind of self-belief and, and confidence in interacting with nature and being outside. An amazing place to grow up. I mean, what, what was your mum doing in the middle of nowhere? She, well, well she was uh, brought up in Switzerland and got to a point where she actually... Um, I think there was the time of the £10 poms. She married my father and uh, they moved out to Australia and mum decided that she wanted to try the opposite of being in Switzerland where everything was very regulated and go out and try living sustainably in the Australian bush. Um, And so this place, it was a um, a little place inland from somewhere called Eden. Um, There was, yeah, huge amounts of bush, the river valley, places to grow things. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's how, how we ended amazing. up there. Your own kind of Eden, really, if you like, in the uh, purest sense. <laughs> yes, but it wasn't completely Eden. So that was if you once you were out w- where they were in this river valley, it was fine. Um, but in the town, which was about half an hour down a dirt track and on a highway, um, was the actual town of Eden, which was the capital of whaling back in the day. Um, but also uh, had a very busy uh, fishing industry. And at the time, the industry was busy fishing itself out of existence, really. The tuna were were disappearing quite fast. And there were also big logging companies out there, primarily a Japanese company, 
um, logging for um, for a wood chip. So you found there was quite a lot of people there who had come for the, the wilderness, but also a lot of industry and people working in that. They were the main employers. So also huge amounts of conflict between all kinds of uh, all kinds of people. So I kind of lived through that as well. But also because you're going to school with children of families who were at both kind of ends of the spectrum, um, had friends in both, and so developed quite a lot of respect and a comfort with talking about yeah. um, issues between people on different sides. So, so that was kind of an early initiation. But you didn't set out to to have a career in conservation, particularly, did you? I mean, some of your early working life would, would, was doing different things. Uh, yes, I, I have done different things. However, I did do, do a, a degree in conservation, but um, I was kind of, I always had an inkling towards this. My father, when I was very, very young, um, said to me that he had to give up his marine science degree because I came along at the end of his first year of, of university. Um, so that, that was there from the beginning. And um, yeah, I had always been pretty passionate about uh, about conservation. And were you always passionate about birds or were you more interested in other aspects of wildlife? Because, you know, I know birds are a very big part of your, migratory birds particularly, a very big part of your life now. But is that how it started or were you interested in Because didn't you spend some time doing stuff in water, free diving, if I got that right? You have that right. <laughs> I um, And to be honest, yeah, birds were really not my main interest. I mean, g- growing up in the Australian bush, there are birds all over the place and lots of them. When I call my mum now... There's a 3D soundscape at the end of the phone of bellbirds going bing, bing, bing. So you can hear that she lives in a valley just from that. And uh, my little sister lost a couple of her guinea pigs to wedge-tailed eagles, but they were playing just next to our house. So I grew up surrounded by kind of large birds and birds of all kinds. Um, But I took them for granted. I think you could probably say that. And I never really developed the same passion for them as I did for all things in the water so that was definitely my my first love and um, from a very young age I was just wanted to be in the water both my parents were keen um, divers my father was a spear fisherman and where we lived off the coast of Sydney his idea of babysitting me while mum was uh, mum was having a day at work was to go spear fishing but where he'd leave me on the on the rock shelf playing in the rock pools and occasionally bring up a fish um, for me to have a have a look at um, but I would entertain myself in, in the rock pools. Um, he'd also take me surfing. But again, my, my early memories of that was him putting me on the front of a surfboard. And as we were going on, he was taking quite a large wave. In my memory, he pushed me off. Now, he swears this never happened. But I distinctly remember <laughs> his hand pushing me off. And I ended up being like tumbled around again and again and again in a big wave and then ending up in the sand close to shore and sort of struggling at first and then realized all I had to do was relax and it would eventually just end and I would end up back on the beach so I just relaxed and let that happen and I think from then on I kind of lost all my fear of the of the sea and yeah off the coast of of Sydney there's such an amount of uh, amazing wildlife uh, to see and it's reasonably clear waters and because the 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 bodies of water the cold and the warm bodies of water move up and down all the time there's quite um, a lot of change as well so I found it fascinating so it was from that sort of time when dad would go out surfing I'd want to be out with my um, mask and uh, and fins on and snorkeling while he was out surfing I never picked up on the surfing which disappointed him but I was happy to be underwater and um, yeah from from that realized that I was a comfortable underwater and um, secondly that I um, 
I was really good underwater. So I think I'm right in saying that you were a free diver. Is that right? Or you, you, at one point you were a free diver. And I think you had, did you hold a record? You're certainly very impressive. But, but for those of us who've never done free diving or may not know what it is, what actually happens when you free dive? Do you just, just dive without, you know, do you have flippers and stuff? Or do you just, do, you know, do you pitch off the side of a boat? Or, you know, because there are a lot of people who probably don't know what free diving is and how it works and what the impact is on your body. Uh, so it's basically, yeah, breath hold diving or any kind of snorkeling that goes below about five meters, I think, is the general definition of it. And um, yeah, so it's, for me, a, a simple form of, of scuba diving. When I first started it, I'd say that was what I used to do as a kid um, with fins on. Obviously, as you get strong legs, the longer the fins, the more powerful a kind of kick and more powerful a push um, you have and the further you can go. But you're holding your breath, aren't you? You're holding you your breath got... the whole time, yes. No air tanks. No, no air tanks. it's just okay. like extreme snorkeling, basically. <laughs> Sounds slightly less glamorous than uh, than free diving, but, but yeah, that's what it is. And how long was the longest that you managed to hold your breath? So I, um, unofficially this is, it ended up being written in, in the, in the um, Sydney papers, and so it became like known as, an, as a record, but actually it was unofficial at the time. Um, six minutes 21 I did in training once with a load of media and people uh, watching and um, I could have gone longer at the time but I had people um, the current record at the time I think was six minutes 11 seconds and I had people yelling you can stop now you can stop now coming up and I I sat up and I was like no I'm really fine Um, but uh, yeah um, I have I've been able to hold my breath for a very long time since I was small I used to always win the kind of mermaid games in the pool and um, as another father story, he he um, swore for years. This didn't happen either. That um, he, when we had a, a pool, we lived for a while in um, on a on a remote cattle station in northern New South Wales. And again, there's not a huge amount of other people around, friends to play with. So my sister and I used to spend a lot of time in the pool. And he'd pay me fifty cents every time I could do another lap um, underwater or a lap underwater on my back. Um, and it got quite expensive for him, but um, I was, uh, yeah, I just yeah, knew from then that I was, I was really quite good at it. So you had this slightly idyllic child of nature upbringing and, and, and growing up in a fairly wild place and obviously found yourself very comfortable in an element, you know, water. But your life has changed slightly and a lot of your conservation work has not actually been about aquatic mammals or, or fish, has it? You've moved into other areas of conservation. So how did that happen? Where did you where did you go after Australia and what took you in that direction? Uh, my, my interest in, in marine conservation came from um, lots of kind of leisure diving and leisure snorkeling and just seeing things that I could see were a problem, um, but also that were quite easy to fix. I mean, it would be easy to write papers on it. Um, but for example, um, again, diving off Sydney, you can see very obvious signs where the seagrass beds were, where I'd go and try and look for seahorses. You could see where people's boat anchors had scraped through the seagrass. And I was pretty sure that the people with the boats uh, wouldn't want that to happen. If they knew that was actually happening, they'd be campaigning as hard as I was for, say, permanent moorings that they could use instead of anchors. Um, same with the shark nets. I mean, the shark nets for me are, are a pretty odd contraption. They're like a little strip of net and they don't stop sharks from reaching a beach at all. 
but they do catch quite a lot of stuff. So I also thought, surely, like, there's time for another conversation about these and what they're actually catching. So I started going out and filming and photographing what were there and getting stories in the media about it because I just wanted people to be talking about the reality of what it was. Um, and then I managed to find a lots of other divers that were equally as kind of interested in diving, but also bored of just diving for the hell of it and were happy to give their time. Um, and so we ended up within a few weeks of starting this, having a growing group of what became about 50 divers that would come to my house every Thursday night and we'd um, have a talk and some food and make a plan for the weekend. And that's how Eco Divers started. Um, and so that, um, yeah, is a group that um, that still exists in different um, different forms. And um, it made me really, I suppose, practical about the conversation. I love the science. I love working with scientists. But my speciality is really on trying to take the science and make it engage with people for change. That's so brilliant. And so you really came, became a campaigner and a conservationist campaigner quite early on, but, but in the world of something that you knew and loved, which was, you know, aquatic and marine life and, and the sea. How did you make that transition to, to doing different things? Because you ended up in the UK, you know, and we have a few sharks, we don't have many, but we don't have such beautiful waters to, to dive in. So what brought you here and why did you change direction slightly? Uh, it was completely by chance the initial bit. So I, I spent a few years, um, a few very formative years in England when I was young, sort of around the age of 15, living with my grandmother. And she was ill, so I came back partly because of her. And by chance, there was a nine-month job at the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust um, and as head of PR. And I'd been doing conservation communications for quite a long time. But I hadn't noticed that WWT was Wildfowl and Wetland Trust. I assumed it was Wildlife and Wetland Trust. And it was actually two weeks into getting the job that I realised it was it was Wildfowl. I thought, oh, what have I done? I, how have I ended up with this role? I, I know absolutely nothing about birds. I'd had to look up in a, the Collins Guide um, what a bittern was in my first week. Um, I really knew nothing. And, it's obviously a um, very rigorous interview process. Well, I, I guess well, what they were obviously looking for, for what I had, which wasn't an expertise in birds. And to to be honest, I um, when I first realised it was wildfowl, as a I guess there's quite a lot of people out there that would hear the term. We don't really use it in Australia either, but I just thought that sounded like domestic animals, like ducks, geese, and swans. I hadn't really any kind of concept of awe around those animals. Um, but all it took was a few more weeks at WWT, and I had a moment with one of the wardens at Slimbridge. Um, a morning walk where we described all sorts of the kind of different characters and behaviour of birds. And then a trip to Calabrock where 25,000 barnacle geese flew over my head only about 10 metres um, above me. And I filmed it, which was amazing. But there's me in my true Australian style swearing over the top of it, just going, wow, wow. Um, in, um, and uh, yeah, that I suppose from that, I was kind of like, right, it's these big spectacles, um, the, the journeys of the birds, which is um, what can really engage people with them. And that was the start, I suppose, of my journey um, into birds. But the what actually took me from the level of being head of PR for a large organization, doing general comms, to being prepared to, to fly with migrating birds was really the, the people that work in it. So meeting and working with really brilliant scientists who had problems that were all around communications. Everything I, I, was, I was seeing with the migrating species were issues of communications, the communications between countries because there's different politics, different languages. 
um, and um, different cultural beliefs around around the birds, but also different industries. Um, and a general need to, to raise huge amounts of awareness in order to get support and different issues in different countries. So for me, it was um, meeting brilliant scientists and thinking there's a communication issue and I think I can help. So finding a niche for myself, really. Yeah. There is something about a very large flock of birds flying over your head, particularly geese and the noise that geese make, isn't there, that is just totally entrancing. Yeah. I just vividly remember when I was breastfeeding my first daughter the 4am geese flight every morning you know and it, and every time I hear geese or I see the geese flying over our house it just brings back all those memories there's something very kind of visceral and affecting so you took yeah. to the skies having been in the sea and obviously we know a little bit about flight of the swans but just tell me a bit more about the new project because you know that was incredible flying with the swans and raising the profile of the Buick swan but you now you're doing something even more ambitious to raise the profile of another threatened migratory species. So tell us about tell us about the ospreys. Well, from a from a global point of view, the ospreys do another part of one of the big one of the eight big migratory um, flyways around the world. So the swan, the Buick swans are kind of doing a bit of the north down to the, the UK and Western Europe, and the ospreys are coming from Europe and going all the way down into West Africa. Um, so yes, they're the, they're the bird I'll be following. And they have quite a different story to the swan. Although they're migrating, um, their story is different. They were completely extinct in um, quite a few countries across Europe due to persecution of different kinds. And they're at a point now where work of scientists and conservationists, um, they have been brought back from extinction in, in the UK, but also in other, other countries, um, uh, including sort of Switzerland, including uh, France and Spain. And it now feels like it's kind of up to the rest of us if we want the birds to be back. Um, they're, they're doing quite well now in Scotland, but if we want them back across um, England and Wales at the kind of levels that they once were, and they could have, they would have existed all over the place, then it's kind of up to all of us to think, could we have them back? Are we prepared to have them back? And, and what do we need to do about it? So that's the question we want people in the UK to be asking. Um, but generally, the, the osprey is an exciting bird for me. Again, there's a um, it's meeting an individual that I thought, I, I love what you do. Um, Roy Dennis was whizzing, whizzing me kind of round a dance floor um, a, a year or so ago and just said, will you do the same for the osprey that you um, did for the swans? Generate kind of mass awareness along a flyway to get people to, to work together on habitats and everything else. Raise the profile of individuals who are doing amazing work all along the flyway. And um, how could I possibly say no? <laughs> Indeed. You know, Indeed. <laughs> why not? That, that quite different from the swans. I mean, presumably not as many flying together at the same time. Very different flight patterns, way that they fly. And, and much further. So because it's going to take you quite a lot longer, isn't it, this time around? I think the, was the swans about six weeks? Was it something like that? Uh, no. So the swan trip actually took me about three months oh, uh, did, in oh, total. Okay. Yeah. So I had an injury in the middle of it. So there was a week of not flying while we taped my knee up, tried to fix that. And then instead had to strap my, my motor up differently. Um, but yes, the, the swans, so the, the swans migrate across, basically between, between wetlands and all over flatland and they flap all the way. Um, but the osprey is largely migrating with thermals. So 
which is perfect conditions for a paraglider. It's just where a paraglider likes to be, thermaling to altitude and then doing long glides. So on this trip, I'll be able to use the, the motor to um, get up to altitude, find the thermals, and then turn the motor off and be able to fly as the, as the birds do. Oh, that'll feel um, amazing, won't it? I mean, yeah, it is different. amazing. And they do fly as individuals, I mean, completely on their own, whereas the swans are often in small flocks. The adults that don't have young are sometimes in larger flocks and often associating with geese and everything else. But the ospreys are definitely solo um, flyers. So there'll be very rare occasions where I might be flying with um, with an osprey exactly, but we'll be able to follow in detail the tracks of the birds and go to the same places and see, like, why are they behaving like this? Are they coming to this area? Are several of them using this area? Why is that? And I'll be able to get a really good feel for um, for the air, but going to much greater altitudes than the swans are going. The swans are largely flying in their autumn migration. They're often flying below heavy cloud, sometimes in, in quite um, bad weather, whereas the, the osprey's migration will be largely warmer um, and crossing mountains, much bigger stretches of water um, and desert. So, yeah, huge amounts of, of extra challenges. How long is it going to take you, do you think? Well, we are probably going to uh, decide, but I, I, the intention is that it will take about three months to get from northern Scotland to the Senegal, Ghana, Guinea-Bissau area. But then we really want to see the whole stretch of West Africa because ospreys from the UK, but also from other areas of Europe, uh, are using that, um, that whole west coast around to Ghana and a bit further. Um, so we want to go all the way around to Ghana also to look at the land use um, and a lot of their companies that are important um, decision makers in what goes on, what fishing, what gold mining, what forestry goes on um, in that whole region are, are based in um, in Ghana. So we want to go and have a look at um, at that whole stretch. So not only is the, the experience for you personally absolutely extraordinary flying alongside the Osprey, I mean, the reason that you are running Conservation Without Borders and the reason your organisation is called that is because it's actually about getting people across different countries and different communities to connect. And I think one of the things that really struck me when you talked about your flight of the swans was how willing people were on the ground to listen to what you had to say, but very often how they just hadn't thought about some of these issues and they just hadn't occurred to them. So it's an incredibly important message, isn't it, this, that you're saying it's actually about connecting people through the mechanisms of you know your extraordinary journey, which is iconic, but actually getting them to focus in on something that affects them directly in their lives, but they might not have thought about. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there is a, a huge amount of power in being able to tell people a story of what something is like from a bird's eye view, create a completely different picture of a world, like a world all across that flyway, but also the world that they kind of are responsible for. What What is your part of the world like from the air? Um, and um, and from a, a bird's point of view. Um, but also there's a lot to be said for the kind of arriving with a story like that. You inspire a sense of awe. The initial thing, no matter whether you're speaking to hunters or you're speaking to other people, the initial conversation you have tends to spark a bit of awe, partly for a human trying to fly this, but also in what the, what the birds are, are going through. And once you have people in a state of awe, it kind of triggers in their brain the kind of state where they become far more open to talking with you about, about the issue. And then when you can talk about this, an osprey called, whatever it happens to be called, who might have been experiencing certain things, it means you talk about things that are really specific, which is much more meaningful to somebody 
um, who is in a particular place potentially shooting birds there at that particular time. Um, it's much more meaningful than talking to them about statistics um, or coming in with a message of, you know, I hate that you're shooting birds, stop it. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's partly what it's about. I mean, the, the Without Borders message is about um, protecting animals across national borders, but also across interest groups. So we have a lot of common ground. I've never met any any hunter that would really like to see a species go extinct. Um, and so we kind of have to, to find finding common ground between people so that we can yeah, move closer towards saving some of these amazing creatures. And your trip isn't till next year to 2020, but obviously you're hugely you know, busy at the moment with preparation and part of that obviously has to be fundraising. So what is it listeners could do if there was something they could do to help you and Conservation Without Borders to make this trip possible? So this is a trip which has got um, yeah a lot of, a lot of potential, but also there are a lot of costs associated with it. So we are fundraising at the moment. That's an important part of it. But um, from sort of for for companies, the one of the key parts of the project is that we engage people not only through meeting them on the ground, but through mass media coverage. And we will be talking to the international media via the news networks um, regularly, several times a week. We'll be distributing um, packages. Um, And so it will be really high profile. So if there's companies that are interested, not only in the conservation, but also in the kind of potential PR and marketing return, then this is an awesome um, opportunity. So, yeah, that's the ideal of what we're really looking for at the moment. But we also need gear sponsors for different things. So everything from our um, expedition kit to our camera um, equipment. We have had people come forward, but we're yeah looking for, for more at the moment. Because it's basically you with a huge sail yep. and a kind of motor on your back. Yep. So it, it's not, you know, there's not like you're in a plane. It's very, the kit in some ways, is though it's sophisticated, is actually quite basic, isn't it? Yeah. But what about um, the general public? I mean, have you got a crowdfunding page? Can people, people want to just support, you know, Sasha to fly with the Ospreys? Can they, can they do that? Can they donate? Yes, they can. So um, through our website, conservation-without-borders.org, um, there is an option there for, for making a donation or making a small regular donation, if that's what you'd rather. Following us on um, on Facebook um, or through Twitter, we will be putting out requests um, before the expedition, but also during the expedition. If we come across a project which, for example, just could do with for example, a wetland centre that actually has no binoculars for engaging with people. I've already come across um, partners along the flyway who are in that situation. Uh, we will be putting out a call for people. If you have anything or if you know a company or if you've got friends in a company that has certain kit, could you supply it? We, um, Yeah, so there will be all sorts of calls for people for more specific things during the expedition as well, but following us on social media. Okay, well, we will talk to you again before you take to the skies and get a bit more, Jen, uh, once you're closer to starting the project but in the meantime if you are interested in supporting Sasha then do get in touch with the organisation so that's conservation-without-borders.org or you can always find her through Planet Pod. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us. No thank you. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer Jim Haywood and our researcher Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.